0: This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie and my next guest this morning is Dane Giroux. He is a writer, a free speech advocate and generally an all-round man that knows lots of things. Good morning, Dane. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm finally excited that we're getting to record one of these conversations because we've had many of them and we never get round to recording any of them. So here we yeah. are and we're right. going to do it today. It's very exciting. I am excited. And we've got so much to talk about and it's almost it almost feels like where to start. But for our listeners that don't know you, tell them a little bit about who and what you are and what you've been up to.
0: Well, I am a TV writer primarily, or, or have been, I mean, the industry is changing so much and so rapidly. I find that I've got a new title every six months because of technology. So that's kidding. I can't keep up with it. But uh, a TV writer, I've written, uh, I did a lot of work in documentary before I sort of broke as a uh, comedy writer with a show called Find Me a Maori Bride, which was uh, a big hit and really lifted my stock in the industry. And since then, I've done about five TV comedies, series, written them. Didn't create all of them, but created a lot of them. I create a lot of shows, written on feature films and uh, do a lot of ghostwriting for other people. Have always been a free speech uh, advocate and very passionate about it and was a member of the free speech union. I stepped down uh, off their board not, um, not that long ago. After four years or something of just Working hard and uh, and achieving a lot actually, and uh, so that was a very, that was very inspiring because I would have been pretty cynical about politics before then, thinking eh, nothing I do is going to make a difference. And of course, it, we made a big difference. And and I see that the boys and and the girls <laughs> at the Free Speech Union are continuing to make a huge difference. Um, I just watch with admiration for what they're doing and and how they're growing. So so that's me. I, I used to be a guitarist before that. I was a musician. Uh, before i even got into tv and i and i i think a lot of the free speech freedom loving stuff comes from my rock and roll past to be perfectly honest with you because i was a bit of a hellraiser uh provocateur on stage and we used to love that stuff and uh i, I think anyone in the arts if you're in the arts and you don't support free speech uh, there's something wrong with you i mean mm. I, I really believe that um and i do see some you know comedians working today who um you know would be peers of mine who. Uh, disagree with me on free speech, and I think, hey, you write jokes for a living, man. <laughs> you, really, you really want that police by the state? It's like, what, what do you do? But, but that's who I am, basically, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, let's sort of unpack that thread a little bit around comedy and writing, because there has certainly been a creep, a censorship creep, especially in the arts. I mean, have you felt that more acutely, or have you stoutly resisted it?
0: I think I've been quite lucky in the arts, and and I'll unpack that. But I I think that New Zealand for a long time has been ultra conservative, and, and we we've never really um oh, in in the art scene, and it's something we haven't really we don't really accept or talk about enough. I, I think people think that, I mean Taika Waititi, who who I think is talented, and fantastic, and great. I heard him referred to as irreverent not that long ago. And I thought, I I like him. He's great, but I wouldn't call that irreverent. That's not irreverent humor. Irreverent humor is dangerous humor. Irreverent humor is really taking a crack at the establishment and, and, and so forth. And he doesn't do that. Now, what he does is completely legitimate. But the fact that people would call him irreverent talks about where our line is in New Zealand which I think is way more conservative. And that could be to do with government funding as well and the fact that, you know, they don't want to be... Oh, I mean, actually, we saw with someone Poet who who did the James Cook poem. There was a bit of a scandal around that because her poem was very offensive and, um, and it was funded by taxpayers, essentially, and people really sort of lost it. So there's probably something to do with that, which has kept us quite conservative. But so I, I don't think this is a new thing in New Zealand. I mean, we may... comedy clubs and some of the comedians that you see working today they tend to all sit on one side of the spectrum when it comes to politics and are in broad agreement and they probably all have the same no-go zones and things like that and I don't think that makes for a dynamic scene but uh, we've always been pretty conservative here Uh, Mm. and and I have been lucky because I, I don't know I just I've just got away with a lot more. Uh, even writing Find Me a Māori Bride. I mean, me, a Jew, uh, writing this you know, Māori comedy about some Māori guys trying to to find a wife. And uh, I mean, that was, it wasn't was very PC or, or anything like that. And I got away with it. But then again, you know, I mean, that was five to seven years ago, the first one. Yeah. Uh, today.
1: <laughs> and that's exactly what I was going to ask. Would you get away with that today? Because, I mean, I just wrote down here in his notes. I mean, I growing up. I mean, I used to watch the comedy of Billy T. James or Macphail and Gadsby, things like Gliding On, all of those sorts of comedies that sort of poked fun at New Zealand, poked fun at ourselves, poked fun at what was going on around us, had lots of social commentary. I mean, I, I look at things, something like Macphail and Gadsby, I mean, would they be able to even do half of the stuff that they used to do today?
0: No, and for a very depressing reason too i think that the networks would say oh they're just older people they're older white men you know like let's do something a little you know what i mean Uh, Mm. it would be that kind of thing it wouldn't even it wouldn't even and this is the problem with identitarianism you know it wouldn't even come down to the quality of what they're putting out there it would be you know they're just they're too old (laughs) yeah It would probably be that kind of thing, you
1: know. And also, too, I think satire has almost become verboten, too, because sometimes that's the whole thing with satire, is that you use a medium of satire and comedy to actually sort of gently nudge or prod at a unspoken truth that people sort of laugh at, but there is an underlying message. Well, in terms of those projects now, I mean, I actually watched live television last night for the first time in a long time, and my youngest son came in, and he watched as well, he was stunned at the advertisements for the shows that were coming up on network television. And every single show was a reality show of one form or another. Mm. And he turned to me and he said, is this what people actually want to watch, Mum?
0: Well, they are cheap to make. Uh, it really comes down to that. they they They're inexpensive a lot of production companies they're not artistic people running them they're just people that want to make money and you can make a lot of money in a production company like like i worked for someone many years ago when i was getting into tv who was working in the minority space like you know the saturday morning where attitude and 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 different sort of magazine
1: magazine style shows used to be on. yeah
0: yeah, that's the thing about minorities and so forth. Yeah. and You know, there was one, she had got one series where she would make two two of these series a year. And the budget was about $800,000 or something like that per time. So she's putting well over a million dollars through a company every year, making two of these, two series per year. You know, we looked at the numbers one day and like 350 people had seen an episode.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: But because it was worthy, uh, they they kept it on the air. And she, and she did that for, I think, six years she was making that show. You know, you you end up with multiple properties out of that. In five years you could do, you know, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made. So these aren't, they're, they're entrepreneurial type people maybe, but they're not, you know, they want to maximize the the, the money they can make out of this stuff. And dramas and comedies are, are very expensive. It's a very expensive paint box, you know.
1: Mm, it is, and it, of course, it, it is that as you said, a double edged sword. Because we want to see ourselves on screen. You know, we want as as New Zealanders, it's great to see other New Zealanders. It's great to hear New Zealand stories, whether it be dramas or comedies, or even reality TV. We want to see ourselves, but when it becomes too cost prohibitive, you know, who, who is going to to foot the bill? I've certainly seen a move to then more print and more audio now for content because of those sort of cost constraints but there's some really really great quality work out there and i know you've sort of pivoted in that space and plain sight how did that come about because i'm loving the content that you have on there the diversity of the writers i've spoken to karina shields which i know is a regular contributor so tell us about plain sight and how that all sort of manifested itself
0: Plain is a blog, which has, has done really well. I mean, it's one of those things where you don't know how well these things are going to do at all, do you? And you and you, you start it and it either sinks, you know, and we knew that when it was either going to sink within a couple of months or really take off. And and it really took off, you know. I mean, we have some weeks are stronger than others, obviously. It's It's been pretty consistent. The reason why I set it up, because I, I set it up with David Kuman who was uh, also a board member of the f- free speech union.
1: Oh, I've interviewed David here.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. you know, member of the Jewish community like myself. Yeah. And um so we're friends. We sort of started it out of frustration that whenever anti-Semitism or or a um, you know, MP says something outrageous and they're never really taken to task for it by our media. Y- you know, I mean, there's possibly all sorts of explanations as to why that is. I was just having a thought the other day that the the minorities that are protected are the ones that that journalists feel would probably vote in their direction.
1: I've always found that with anti-Semitism, that Mm. it's convenient to use when it scores political points back to an opponent. And I see both sides do it.
0: Exactly right.
1: But neither side will advocate.
0: That's right. I think it becomes, but I think that happens with minorities a lot, and and I, I learned that at the Free Speech Union too. You know, this protection of minorities thing uh, and, and being the reason for free speech is is not true. It's it's a thorny issue for minorities, but we can get into that later. I mean, I'd love to uh, discuss that. Yeah, we felt it wasn't being being taken seriously, and and we thought, well, you know, I mean, we we can write. Why don't we write our own pieces? And then we started talking about, you know, what would this blog be like? And, you know, are we going to just do that the whole time? We decided that it would be good to have a blog out there that was dedicated to these stories that, in fact, we even said that to to, to writers when we did a group email to a whole lot of people we thought could, could be really good contributors. We said, write about anything, write about sport, you know, any sport, tiddlywinks we don't care. But The only thing we ask of you, give us stuff that you think would never, ever be uh, published in any other platform. That's all it had to be. It it can be left. It can be right. We don't care. It it, It can be a review of a ballet. We don't care. We don't care. We did not care. We just said it's got to be content that you cannot imagine turning up on any other platform. That's the way to to fill a hole in in, in, a, in a media landscape is say okay well, what's what's not being done, and so we did that, and a lot of uh, gender critical feminists started inundating us with pieces because they they don't get a get a fair shake in the media.
1: Oh gosh, don't they? What? Yeah. No.
0: And, and and you know, multi perspectives like uh, Karina, the, yeah, the, Karina shares because um, you know, I mean, there's such a tight reign; people do not even realize. The tight rein on representation of Maori out there. I, I think there's a lot of narratives around, you know, Maori being in control and things like that. It, it's not. It's not. No, uh, the,
1: that's, that's it's, a particular interest of mine, and I know it's one that I dive into with the show a lot because there yeah. are a lot of false narratives that are placed out there, particularly around Maori. And Maori, yeah. as you said before, with minorities, are often the ones that end up being. Uh, used as a tool but never really advocated for. That's you know, right. so they yes, used to score right. political points. And and that has been Māori Six Ways of Sunday. And there is yep. a general and I'm seeing it now with the divisions in Marty. And I know Karina and I yep. have spoken about this. And yep. So I I completely agree with you. There are that's why I love what you're doing with plain sight, because you are creating conversations that are not being allowed to be held well, anywhere well, else.
0: Yeah. And and it's non it's nonpartisan. I mean, if anything, we sort of would lean left in a way. But but see, left and right are, are tough labels for me because I, I still being a sort of classic left wing, you know, guy from South Auckland. It, it's it's left and right are purely economic for me. Mm. You know what I mean? C- yes, but
1: see, it's identity now, Dane. You've got to get with the twenty twenty, Stalin.
0: Well see What about
1: identity classes yeah. so last century?
0: Well see, identitarianism for me is a sign that you're on the right, if anything. There's nothing actually traditionally left wing mm. about identitarianism. I mean, if you if you if you took the politics you, you see today and you know started preaching it in a trade union hall in old Papatui in, in, in nineteen seventy-five they would think you were an actual fascist. Mm. They they, would think you were a a swastika wearing, but they really would not, they'd boot you out. It, It wouldn't fly at all. You know, but you know, there's journalists and people who are like, oh, what's this plain sight? Oh, oh, it's this right wing blog. It's not right wing. I mean, that's just nuts. It's just crazy. It's it's always
1: those uh, are the labels, aren't they? That's all part of the identitarian shtick. I mean, everybody's got to have a label.
0: Everyone's got to have a label. And it's like, well, if you don't broadly agree with, say, the government, who we've been told are, are left wing, then you must be right wing. It's like, well, it's just use your brain, actually analyze all these. Policies and really break them down, and you'll see that it's 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 not as clear cut. I mean, even even the current you know, like the current Labor government. I mean, they they can be left ish on some topics, but it's marginal uh, compared to national. I mean, you know, the debate was on but the first debate between Christopher Luxon and, and and Chris Hipkins, and I walked away thinking, well, both men probably feel okay about how it went uh, and everything, but. Uh, I was depressed because it was like, they're sort of the same guy.
1: That was exactly what I felt. So I watched it too. Again, I watched it with my teenage son. Yeah. And he looked at it and he said, how on earth do you tell them apart?
0: Uh, how do you do One's got hair. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. No? Uh, but one's got hair. And, and look, there are meaningful differences between the parties and a policy or two.
1: Yeah. You know? This, that's where it came down. It was actually the final segment when they talked about environment, because mm. they are essentially both on the same page here. Yeah. And in terms of creating some form of debate, they were literally getting down to the milking mice of the minutiae of how it is that they will implement whatever it was to get to the same goal. And at that point, I thought to myself, this is one of those moments where I thank myself for MMP. Mm. Because that's really where I was at. I was thinking, gosh, you know, if you were an under, still an undecided voter, and there are plenty out there, if you were looking at that debate thinking, right, one of these Chris's going to sway me in one direction or another, I don't think either of them necessarily would. And at least you can cast your eye round and know that you can place your vote somewhere else and there is a a possible likely well good more than likely good likelihood depending on what you choose that your voice will get some form of representation in the house so you know with first past the post imagine that if when it was still Mm. first past the post it's a terrifying thought
0: but then again see my my issue with mmp is and rodney hyde actually um said this to me I, i did a um uh, a documentary thing with him about t- 10, 12 years ago. And he said, the Greens are the luckiest party because they haven't been in power yet. So they haven't had the opportunity to disappoint their supporters. And he was right. Like all the small parties will underdeliver. deliver. I mean, because they're going to be wed to one of the larger parties. That's a problem because you're voting for certain certain things that they're promising that... Are just never going to happen, and we, you know, and we can be feel assured they're never going to happen. But it also means when you're in a small party, you can kind of say anything mm. because you know that and you're, they do, and they do, and then you just say, well, hey, it's like, what can I do? I'm just the the minnow here. There's a there's a shark next to me. You know, talk to the shark if you've got a problem. You know, I'm just a sprat. But, you know, the Māori Party under the National Party is a good example of they yeah. lost their identity a bit and, and really got crushed. And the Greens that are in now haven't really achieved much of anything, you know, compared to what their base would have wanted. I kind of think we still, in a funny way, have first passed the post.
1: We did, we have had it for the last three years, on mm. in all intents and purposes, haven't we? Then look how that turned out. The scary thing for me is that a disengagement from the population with the process. Because the process, I think, is really important. And one of the things that has stifled that process has been the ability to have complete open and free speech. So we end up cycling all the way back round again, don't we, to the importance of those conversations and being able to express those conversations in an open forum. And the media, the traditional media, the legacy media, was always that place where those ideas were aired and that does not seem to be fulfilling that mandate anymore. And so therefore, stations like this and blogs like Plain Sight are having to sort of fill the gap.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't expect them to take every position on everything, to be fair to them. I think there are some really good reporters working. I know Mark Dolder may upset some people listening <laughs> to reality check, but he, he is a diligent character and he's got his own beliefs, obviously, and but has been holding the government to account. And, and he does his work. He does the work. I don't care if if I don't agree with you, but if I can see you, you've done the work, uh, you've got my respect in that space because we're not all going to going to agree, you know? Hmm. But that's just that. But I think the issue is there are some key important topics culturally and, and socially that um, the media just will not, Will not touch or has just decided there's a very particular narrative it's going to tell, and it just doesn't bend from that. And often, obviously, it reflects the political leanings or the ideological uh, beliefs of maybe the writers and management, you know. But here's the thing this is the thing about free speech and censorship censorship doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, the best example we have of that recently, right? is Trevor Mallard at the parliamentary protests instructing the media not to talk to anyone down there. Right. Yeah. Little did he know that there was a film crew among the protesters who made basically the gone with the wind of protest films, you know, River of Freedom, which is like a two and a half hour opus. Yeah. That speaks to hundreds of people. And now they're, traveling the country and screening it uh, have you seen all over it? the place. I, I did a review of it for, mm. for plain Sight. I did. I, I did a review of it p- for plain Sight. I saw it on a big screen. I kind of cheated because I have a VR headset, and the VR headset has a big screen app, and I put on the headset, and I'm in a massive old classic theater. If you know anything about VR, like perspective and everything is just mm. – incredible. It works incredibly. I I got to see it on this big screen in my living room. It's just incredible tech. And I, you know, look, I was, I haven't been, I'm not fully on board with a lot of that stuff with the protests, but I I was definitely anti-mandates because I'm left-wing. It's like, you don't take a person's job away. I mean, come on. I mean, John Minto, you know, he's a he's very much a stalwart of the left wing movement, and he he was the same. all, all the old Marxists in their sixties or whatever, they were all anti-mandate, all of them, because you know, Matt McCartan would have been anti-mandate.
1: Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I found that really emotional watching yeah. it, and and that's primarily because my husband has mandated out of his profession, so we've sort of started again in that respect first time I've actually said that to listeners believe me there's more to that story to come but I can't share it now so for us that was really really emotional but I agree with you see the mandates for me was always the problem it was always, and what I loved with the filmmakers I think Gaylene made this and did this incredible job it wasn't a partisan issue and she showed the the length and breadth and depth of all the different people that were there and and how that they were affected around that that issue and it was just so beautifully shot and I'm so glad that the film was made and it's there on the record because I think up until that point, there's been some actually great work done, but up until that point, really, uh, the perception, the public perception about what went on had been overwhelmingly negative.
0: Yeah, and and see, this is a problem with censorship because, you know, like I said, Mallard obviously had no, there was no way you could have suppressed something that the feeling and the the passion that a lot of those protesters had, you can't legislate that away. <laughs> That's not going to work. The other thing is that I think anyone with half a brain should have been able to work out that the more distance we we get from the pandemic, the more people are going to to really, you're going to see a lot of people change their minds. You're going to see a lot of people that were very pro the government change their minds on this stuff because we're out of the danger zone. I would say within about six months or even a year's time, the commonly held view will probably be that we didn't really need the lockdowns. Mm. And that'll be around the world. You could argue that, well, yeah, that's because people, (laughs) you know, a lot of us have, you know, bad memories and, and, uh, and a forgetting we may have been, you know, quite freaked out at the time and may have been calling for it. But so you, you censor this stuff today, but then in six months' time, when different science comes through, when public mood has changed, people look back on the government and say, Why did you silence us? Mm. You know?
1: Well, I'm gonna read you a quote and yep. and it's something that I think it, fits perfectly with this. I dug this quote out because I'm thinking I've got a funny feeling that this is going to fit somewhere in the conversation that we Uh have, And, and you've just brought it up. And this is the quote. The totalitarian mass leaders base their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions, one could make people believe in the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest and they had known all along that the statement was a lie and they would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. Mm. And that is from Hannah Arendt, of course, the author of The Banality of Evil. That's why I think free speech is so utterly vital, because when you've got a mass of people, as you said, over the length of time, as more time goes on and they get separated from the intensity of that propaganda, they will actually start looking at things a little bit differently. And as more information comes out about like yeah. beautiful films like this and and they can see what sort of happened like and I've spoken to many people that have said, I really had no idea. And it's like, well no, because you weren't allowed to have any idea and it took a lot of work to, to find different voices and and different information if you wanted to seek another point of view
0: yes and all it's going to do finally is make people a lot more distrusting of power mm. and, and so it's an own goal censorship is an own goal you know it's short-term gain Eleanor Catton, you know, who wrote The Luminaries and, and Burnham Wood is a new one. She was on RNZ and I'm basically with her on, on this. She was, it was quite, I was quite surprised to hear this from her actually, but she, because she she was a green supporter and very supportive of Jacinda Ardern when she came in. But after the protest, she said, look, you know, you could have gone out there as Jacinda Ardern and said, I think you should get the vaccine. On the information I have, I really think you should get it. But if you don't want to get it, I'm not going to force you. I'm going to say you should. Her point was you have to make room for dissent and difference. Mm. You, the
1: problem it, it, is, though, she did do that. And then 10 days later, she she then forced people.
0: Completely, completely. And then Chris Hipkins the other day was saying, well, it's not, it's not forced. It, well, it, yes, it's it was completely coercion. If you're losing your job. Mm. My son was uh, vaccinated. He um, was 21 at the time. Uh, he was under no danger yeah, and yeah. you know and he wasn't going to increase the spread to other people uh, look you, you could have argued that, that health workers you know frontline health workers maybe there was a an argument there that you know this was a very specific role and probably because of that but even then i think graham adams uh, i was having a conversation with a journalist who writes a lot for the platform was saying but even then you say okay well would you like to work off the front line Maybe we'll find something else for you to do if if there were things for them to do behind the scenes, if that's the case. You know, like I think all effort should have been should have gone into to to keeping people working. Um, Mm. But ultimately, what did it do? She denied this. Her supporters would deny this. But it was a it was a nail in the coffin. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Political career. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and she can, and they can all run down the people that were there and everything. And some people were there probably for the wrong reasons, and I I totally understand that. But again, as you say, and as the documentary makes clear, it, it wasn't one type of person. It was just it was just as diverse as any community in in the country, and it became a town. Mm. <laughs> that's the other thing, hey? That like they actually, I just want to pivot to that because that's what struck me in that film. You know, I come from Otahuhu in South Auckland, and I remember when my town was like Carmel or a small town up north or something. You know, we had that, we had the league club that we'd go to and all that kind of stuff. We don't have communities like that necessarily anymore, and I think that a lot of people who were at that protest, right, they would have gone there for whatever reason but what they found when they were there was a village
1: yeah they That's found great. a village
0: you could see that in the film that was the interesting thing and, and i wish people in power would take note of that you know they saw people mucking in they saw people helping out each other you know strangers w- were saying to each other you need this this guy's coming in he's going to supply this oh we need a trench let's dig a trench We need toilets. Let's do this. There there would be people there that have been craving that sense of um, belonging in a community that we're losing in New Zealand.
1: Mm, Because we've been taught and groomed to, if we need any of those things, to rely on the state. Well, yeah. Yeah. And when I see, I mean, we're a similar age. So I grew up in a very, very small rural community. No one would ever consider waiting for the government to supply anything. If you wanted to, at the school, we had a small school pool. And this was back in the days when all New Zealand primary schools had a school pool and you Mm. were taught to swim at school. Where I grew up is right up in the Raukumara Ranges. It was a lot cooler up there. It was very high elevation. So the amount of time to actually be able to swim was only really over that peak of the summer holiday. So there wasn't a lot of time. So what was happening was it was just simply too cold. So the way to fix that problem was to cover in the pool and build to help keep that space warm so then we could have more time to teach the kids how to swim and teach us how to swim. The community got together, they fundraised, they did events, they all pulled things together, they built it. Mm. And it was the community that made it happen. It wasn't the Ministry of Education. They just looked at us and went, well, you, yeah, you do it.
0: I, I don't think the contemporary politician really understands that need for for community. No. We don't need to be micromanaged by a government. We can look after ourselves. I mean, coming from South Auckland, I, you know, I've been going back there, obviously, and with my little charity thing with for young emerging comedy writers, I have got a new initiative where I have been basically teaching comedy to these younger people in South Auckland. You know, Labour is a – see, there's an irony here too because Labour, as a political party, was set up for those people, really. They're just left alone. And they are sort of doing it themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. People are sort of mucking in themselves and getting things done themselves. Those communities are probably still a, still stronger. But basically, yeah, it's it's like uh, they're technocrats, you know. A lot of governments around the world, are. nationals are technocratic party as well as Labour, so, you know, let's not pick on Labour. And I think technocrats think that, like a lot of social engineers, you know, we're numbers on an Excel sheet. You can just take us out of one box and put us in another box and you'll arrive at a different total. Yeah. But no, we think, (laughs) you know, we have hearts. You know, we, we we have desires. We rebel. Uh, that's that's the way people are. You know, we're not as malleable as a lot of people try. You know, people in those echelons think we are. One thing that really got me in the debate was when they were talking about, well, I banned soft drinks in primary schools. Oh, oh, well, I'm going to ban it in high schools. It's like, oh, my goodness. Ban, ban, ban. mm Okay, talk to us about how bad sugar is and everything, and then just let people make up their own minds and get up. People will work it out, and if they don't,
1: they don't. Look, you're talking to a libertarian here, so I'm just fully on board with all of that. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to certainly argue with that. Now, I want to dive into this new project in South Auckland that you're doing because uh, you sent me a little clip to listen to, which I listened to, and I found... Utterly engaging and charming and delightful. So tell us a little bit more about this project because it just it warms the cockles of our heart. And I think as Kiwis, we need to re- to remember there's some really good stuff going on out there in our communities. It isn't all just doom and gloom.
0: Oh no, no, it's not all doom and gloom. Like when you when you yeah when you get out on, on the street and talk to people, it's 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 great. And going back to South Auckland has been important for me. I think as an artist in a funny way you never really leave your hometown you know like you sort of you go back a lot of your stories I mean the older I get because you know I went through the whole phase of wanting to rebel against being a South Aucklander and you know try to recreate myself as someone from the inner city Auckland and and everything but now I I I go back because that's where all the characters are and that's where all the memories are and I had when I was a very young man, I, I was getting into quite a bit of trouble, actually, in in South Auckland. I was, you know, running with gangs and and getting into some, uh, you know, petty crime and and all, all all sorts of stuff like that, which is not a uncommon story, sadly, out there. Uh, I found the guitar, and that really slowed my descent. But um, but but also some mentors, you know, when I when I got into because I got into acting first before I went behind the scenes. And a lot of people took a shine to me, people that, you know, flamboyant gay uh, theatre directors who, you know, I didn't encounter too many of in South Auckland, (laughs) but they were like fathers and they really believed in me. And I'd think, well, if they believe in me, maybe I do have a bit of talent, you know? I owe those people so much. And so I thought, that you know, the day's going to come when I want to give back. And so I created this initiative and what it is, is it's using audio because audio is, I mean, the the overheads are so low. It's just not cost prohibitive at all. You can sort of, you can set your audio story on a space station by just having a beeping sound in the background. You don't have to build a massive set. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. And so I went out there, I partnered with OMAC. I raised some money through Boosted uh, initially. Then I partnered with OMAC, the Otara uh, Music and Arts Centre. We brought some young people in. And we had the skeleton of a script, but then we I was got, wanting them to sort of contribute to them and, and do do what we call a table, right? A comedy table. And a comedy table is literally a table and everyone's sitting around the table and punching up jokes. We Sometimes we call it a punch up where there might be a joke and someone says, hey, I, I can put a button on this joke by saying this. Oh, that makes a joke way, way, way better. So it's about making strengthening the comedy and stuff and getting getting harvesting other gags and stuff and i learned a lot doing it because my i, I don't know if, if you're a practitioner sometimes you forget how you do it in, in a weird way it becomes a bit intuitive like sir john gilgood when when someone asked about his lovely voice I, they said, you know, what do you do? And he goes, well, I just open my mouth <laughs> you know, and speak. But, but yeah, you do now after, you know, years and years of, of training and everything. And I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, this could be a bit slow going. I might have to really give them a bit of a, a hand here in, in terms of writing jokes. But, of course, comedy uh, really, uh, and this is what the, the lesson I took away from it, yeah, you're, you're writing jokes, you're crafting jokes, but a lot of it is true life experiences. A lot of what I've put into the, my shows over the years have been, you know, characters I've met, people I've seen, little dialogue exchanges that happened that I'm just sort of pulling out of my memory bank and, and, and putting down as in scripts. Whenever we got to a bit of a block, I'd say to the kids, What would you do in this situation? Or have you been in a situation similar to this? And then the boy, we um, color his name as he's. Tongan boy, he was like, "Oh, this reminds me of my, when my friend did this, 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 and this." And it was a funny story. And I said, "Say that again." And I started typing it down. He's like, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, we're going to put it in." And he's mm-hmm. like, "But it's, but it's not, it's not a joke. It's real life." And I was like, "That's the point." Once they knew that that was legitimate, it all came out. Yeah. You know.
1: It had humour. It covered elements of religion. There was love. There was community, and then there were those little jokes. So one of the, there was a little part I think that he was going across the harbour bridge, and he was like, "Oh, I'm a Tongan. You know, we like to have our feet firmly on the ground. I'm a big boy. I like to have my feet firmly on the ground." And I chuckled at that. You know, it just was those little little authenticities that just made it really engaging.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I I, I love that stuff too, and 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 it was. Like I say, exploiting their personalities, you know, just just saying, just be you, mm. be you, and share who you are. And of course, pre-color is Tongan, Livian, the the, the other um, writer is Nguyen. so it all went in there. But yeah, it's a good narrative, and we had you know Regan Roll because another thing with this initiative is Regan Roll, who's. Um, He's got a social media channel, Just The Norms. He's a big social media star. Because that's the other thing about the mainstream. We talk a good game on diversity, but no one's going into South Auckland to tell stories like this or create stories like this. And this amazing subculture of Maori and Polynesian urban comedians has sprouted up on YouTube and Instagram and, and, and different platforms like that. Who get numbers that would make Guy Williams look like just an ant? Yeah, like and you know, no disrespect to to Guy, but Jimmy Jackson. I don't know if you if you know of him, but he's got this great clip on YouTube called "When the Poor Kid Stays at the Rich Kid's House." <laughs> so it's, it's a little skit about a few scenarios of a poor kid getting to stay at a rich kid's house. You know, which is something you know if you're from South Auckland, I've been there. I know, I know that feeling, it's, and, it, and it really struck me. 24 million views on YouTube. 24 million views on YouTube. That's that's Kevin Hart level stuff.
1: Mm. Just shows you the power of that medium. I mean, we've just had, yep. you know, the singer in or Virginia, Oliver Anthony. Once people latch on to something and and it resonates with them, particularly that authenticity. Yeah. It spreads like wildfire. And again, what you just described, like that comedy, one of the little elements I picked up with that again is the characters headed across, headed across the Harbour Bridge and they saw the girls standing at the bus stop. It's like, oh, this is what it's like on the other side. You know, yeah. they're so beautiful. <laughs> it was just yeah. so funny. It was really... Really, really quite funny. And actually, there was the one, I actually wrote this line down because it was the one line that really made me laugh out loud. One of them said, oh, don't worry, they must be racist. The other character said, nah, it's just prejudice against stupid people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the sort of thing that it was just so beautifully done. The project now. So, how so you've pulled everyone together, they've done the, the writing. And I mean, there was a lot of Foley elements, there was sound, there would have been editing, there would have been mixing. Obviously, there's the, the voice performance. So, how did you pull all that together?
0: Well, OMAC, the Otara Music and Arts Centre, was a big part of that. They gave us the studios, obviously. Um, Regan, you know, our social media uh, star. And, and Cohen Holloway, who was in um, Hunt for the Wilder People, he, he he plays John Campbell as a cameo <laughs> in it. <laughs> he does a news thing because uh, he's he's a probably our preeminent impressionist of, of John Campbell. My son actually is a sound editor, so he did all the foley and everything like that. I'd like to do the next one. I would love to record live with an actual old school Foley artist on stage and make it a ticketed event. I think that would be awesome because I want to keep doing these, but this one releases on September the 29th. So it's coming out. It's taken a while to come out because I am a perfectionist and thought we could remix it and do this and do that. And I've I've got got a bit carried away, to be honest with you, but I just love it, you know, And, and you know, I work on VR games and, and you know, I, I get called into, you know, doctor big scripts and and feature film scripts and things. But there's just something about a, a, a gig like this where I'm not going to make a cent out of it that <laughs> I just love, you know, because that comedy table, the energy of a comedy table, to me, that's my happy place. If I could wake up every morning and just sit at a comedy table, because you laugh all day, that's all you do. You're there to make each other laugh. And that's your job for eight hours. Like I've been at comedy tables where if I ever have a professional comedy table, I bring Cohen Holloway along. Because the thing with the comedy table, and this is going to be a bit, this is going to get tougher in the, in the, in the age of wokeness, but there's an unspoken rule at the comedy table that you are going to go too far. The humor is going to be rank. It's going to be devastating. You're going to be, oh, did I just hear that? Your ears should melt at those tables. You're going too far there, so you can find the line and not go too far in the actual finished project. So it's very explorative, and you're pushing, pushing, provoking. You know, just to just a create a sense of looseness and abandon. And I've been at comedy, t- like you know, Cohen is just the main offender. Like he, he's a guy at those tables where you just you just get crushed. You're like. I, I, did I just hear what I heard? <laughs> you know, but I do worry now that people are gonna bring cell phones in and record this and say, see? But to me, you know, you'd never judge someone about what happens in those rooms. That is my happy place. You you leave your cheeks are sore, you can't breathe you've had breathing issues all day from laughing. I mean, it's it's a fantastic thing. So so that's the the joy. You know, I want to cre- keep creating with these younger people around these tables, you know. And, and, of course, the other practical thing is, you know, these these kids can, can out like me on um, social media doing skits. But this is half hour, this comedy album. It's it's a half hour narrative. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, you can do a skit and you're fantastic at that. It's rough and ready. It's made on your phone. Everyone knows the the style and, and you know, I love that stuff. I, I watch it and laugh all the time. Okay, how do we take your ideas and add more meat on them to get it to half an hour? Because if we if they can do that, then they can knock on the door of Māori TV or or various production companies and say, look, I got this credit. I wrote on this comedy album. Here it is. It's half an hour. I can I can sit around a table. I can contribute to a table. I can do all those things. Would you employ me? What I'm doing is set up to closely resemble the professional experience as much as possible because we just don't have enough of these urban young people in our industry. And there's reasons for that. A big reason is we're producer-driven. The producers I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to jump in a car and go to South Auckland to find talent when they have people in Greyland who look like them, sound like them that they sort of know socially, that they can collaborate with. And you also, know?
1: too, their body of work is quite small as well. So, I mean, in an industry where you don't have, you know, the work is relatively finite, the finance is finite, you will tend to keep going fishing back in the same pond again and again and again when really actually you should go for, you know, fishing further afield.
0: There's a lot of that. And I think, and this is the thing about diversity and the issue I have with it, because, you know, we we're talking this great game about diversity, but we're still ignoring these people. Hmm. because we, you need to talk about class too. What happens often is they'll say, okay, look how great this is. This is a show by this person. Uh, diversity, diversity. Finally, someone's getting an opportunity. But the person could be in the inner city, you know, maybe a lawyer who's sort of, <laughs> you know, writing comedy for a while, you know, until they sort of give it up and go back to law. I mean, yeah, it's, it's that type of – it's often that type of person. They're very – they're all of one class. They're all of the same class. Yeah. What are they doing? For, and this is identitarianism again. You know, because they're, they're just making it very narrow to are you Asian, are you this, are you that, they're ticking their boxes with, with people from the inner city, you know, that they know and, and who are safe. See, they're culturally similar, so they're safe. They know what they're going to get. Jimmy Jackson with the 24 million clips, they don't know what they're going to get. He could be dangerous. He could be hard to contain. He's a he's a provocateur, so they don't want to touch that guy. You know, they 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 want the person that thinks like them, but who just looks a little different. We got to yeah. go into the, those communities because that's where that's where actually the, the the hungry audience is. Clearly, too, they're the people prepared to watch twenty four million, you know, views to, to to give an artist that many views.
1: Yeah. And again, it's reflecting what we, you know, reflecting ourselves on television and and, or on any sort of medium. And I think that Taika Waititi, when he put out Boy, and I remember going to see Boy, and I laughed so hard because that part of the country was somewhere that I used to go when I was a kid. It hasn't changed. And the characters, all the characters that were there, I mean, I was at primary school a little bit earlier than that, but just I, I mean I laughed out loud because when that was written, it was actually surprisingly authentic. There was a you know there was those comedic elements there, but for someone like me, it was incredibly nostalgic and it was really wonderful to be able to laugh at those times in our lives. And it was sort of slightly edgy and dangerous, but even now you're not seeing content like that much anymore. Or you have to really hunt out for it. It's um it's hard to find.
0: Yeah. It it is hard to find. See the other thing, I guess, about New Zealand work, which I think is really disappointing and, and strange. And and I don't have a. It's not quite clear why things have, have worked out this way in England, and in America, they've worked out that working class stories are popular and sell, and people want to see them, like Train Spotting from Scotland. <laughs> right, it was about a group of feral junkies. <laughs> it's, it's like. We would never do that here. We would never do that here. A lot of the stories we tell, we seem to actively avoid those working class stories.
1: Well, the Australians even do it though. Oh,
0: well, well, the castle. Yeah,
1: Yeah, the castle is, you know, one of the greatest Australian films ever made. But the castle did it. Strictly Ballroom did it. Muriel's Wedding did it. Priscilla did it. They all told stories of these different communities in such a way that were completely endearing. And in fact, there was another one that was in that time, back in my first foray in radio, I used to, movie reviews was part of my gambit. And I remember reviewing an Australian film called Soft Fruit. If you'd ever seen, if you ever Mm. want to giggle, that's hilarious. And the Australians do that comedy, that class-based comedy, brilliantly.
0: Brilliantly. And, and and we've never, we've never really gone there. And, and I can hear people screaming at the, at, at their phone or whatever. What about our outrageous fortune? But like, I know West Auckland is, that was such a sanitized version of what West Auckland is. You know, they all look like just, they were just Shortland street actors. No disrespect there, but it's like, that, that that's not the West Auckland I know, you know, the West Auckland I know were, were guys that look like Lemmy. they were just from motorhead you know i mean it was an outrageous place i used to when i was a young boy going to parties there i was like be careful you know this is where all the the lemmy lookalikes are and they'll you know they'll rough you up
1: see i'm just feeling a new show called the tron coming on (laughs) <laughs> and, and you can actually create your lemmings your lemings yeah, right? yeah 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 uh,
0: but've we've, we've never been good at that we've never we've mm. never well I don't know whether we're good at it or not we've just never gone there and, and it could be because a lot of the I, I think a lot of the decision makers think that they have a I mean you see this in Māori broadcasting all the time I gotta I gotta be honest about this you know working in Maori broadcasting a lot of the people I work with at Maori TV are university educated Māori. you know they're not there weren't that many urban Māori there, actually. Um, well, well, I mean, you know, urban, but not South Aucklanders and people like that. They were mainly people who learned te reo at university and, and so forth. And they would often, like I even found with Find Me a Māori Bride, sometimes I'd get feedback saying, oh, let's not go there with this character. But I, I'd fight, you know, very hard because I knew these people were, were real because they were friends of mine and people I knew but there's a sense that we have to protect the image of Māori. If the wrong type of images is let out there, that's going to lead to negative perceptions and so forth. I think you can really overthink that. At the end of the day, what you want to combat negative perceptions is you want diversity of representation of Māori. You want to see villains You want to see good guys. You want to see everything in between. You know, that's how you combat racism or negative perceptions. You just say, hey, there's a spectrum here, just like there is with anyone, you know, and and we're going to unashamedly
1: present that. And I think viewers and listeners, you know, authenticity. Yeah. And as long as it's authentic, then I think nothing should be off the table.
0: Well, Well, that's right. That's right, because, again, it's going through the filter of a certain type of person from a certain type of background. They're gatekeepers. That's the name for it, gatekeeping. Mm. You know, it's, 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 it's a classic thing. I just think it means our, our industry. You know, there's, there's a narrative that we punch above our weight, but a lot of stuff that gets made today, you know, still, uh, uh, there's a writer friend of mine, he, he said something which I found really, I thought it was perfect. He said he saw this New Zealand show recently, and, and I said, oh, what, did he, what did you think? He said it was as if 30 years of television hadn't happened. It was as if the sopranos hadn't happened. It was as if, it was as if breaking bad hadn't happened. You know? Mm. Like that's that's what ends up happening. We just make things that sort of are broadly soapy, soap opera-y, and just aren't taking the risks that a lot of other people are taking now. Like TV has become riskier than feature film right now, like abroad with streaming and everything.
1: I found that a lot of the watching that I'm doing, I find that I need to watch stuff that is essentially 10 years or older Mm -hmm. in order to take away a lot of those filters. Because think about, I mean, what has been made since the ending of Breaking Bad that you have just mentioned? My sons and husband love the show. I've watched bits and pieces in and out. And before we started this interview, I had my own fly moment. And if you've watched the show, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yes. What has been made since then that is as, as edgy as that?
0: We are conservative. Hmm. The Smash Palace is one of our greatest films. The, the, the Film Commission never wanted, that. never wanted to make that. They never wanted to make that. They never wanted to make Once a Warriors. They did not want to make that film.
1: I am, We showed <laughs> that to our sons. At the last school holidays, my yeah, my
0: boys haven't it. seen it actually. My my, I need to sh- show it to them. I mean, that, that-
1: tell you what, it stood up really well. Oh,
0: Willie Tamahori is an amazing <sighs> director. Like it, you know, he had a very good Hollywood career for a reason.
1: I was stunned because I it's there's some really really challenging content there, and I yeah. have always found that film very very challenging because as I said, I grew up in a small rural community on the east coast. There's a lot of truth there. And it can be quite confronting, and there was a lot of emotion. It still stirred up. I hadn't seen it since it was out initially. The storytelling is just as relevant today as when it was the day that it was made. And the boys were riveted, absolutely riveted. You know, we then talked about at the end of the film, my husband and I, and we all sat round and you know discussed themes in the film. We discussed the themes around family violence and sexual assault, and that social element of of trying to find where you're from, but struggling to actually create that connection. All those themes that were there, oh. and that just shows you the power of the quality of a really good story and a th- and an authentic story stands yeah. a test yeah. of time.
0: Well, 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 a lot of the locations uh, were filmed in Otago. That, like my, like uh, the the big tavern that they are in, used to be our food town at one point. Um, so, uh, for me, it was like I, I even know some of the locations, you know. But no, I was very affected by it when I saw it as a young man. Um, I, I um, but but you know, they didn't they did not want to make that film, and um, and and these are films that the Americans or the French or the or the English uh, w- would make a, a drop of a hat. See, what's sad about that is, you know, you just said that you had discussions. When, when it came out, there was a lot of discussion. That was a New Zealand film that led to a lot of discussion. It brought this really pressing topic into the, into the consciousness in a way that we felt we could talk about it a lot more. So rather than negative perceptions that film i would say probably helped thousands of people i heard in, in france you know there, there was a some um, domestic violence organization that was using it in their education I, I would say that there'd be countless organizations that would be referring to it yeah and, and we were able to have that conversation so people need to be bolder because you know art can be ugly you know our art should be a safe way for us to show our, you know, to, to really show our ugliness so we can deal with it. So we can identify it and say, yes, that's true. I get it. I understand. What are we going to do about it? You
1: know? Oh, absolutely.
0: Those discussions can happen.
1: Which then takes us all the way back. We cycle back round to the importance of uh, free speech. So, for people who want to find out more about your work, where to find different things, uh plainsight.nz is the blog. Yeah, and that's where the we're, blog. Yep. and when, where we get we going to find is it is it I mean I've just got it called the dolphin on the clip that you sent me. Is that what it's going to be? Oh no, the, it's
0: it's it's called Night of the Dolphin. The Night of the Dolphin.
1: Where yeah, and night. 29th, you said so how where is that being released?
0: Well, it's going to be on all streaming platforms. So I was actually thinking now, how do I best where do I direct people exactly? Because it's going to be everywhere. It's uh, distributed through a um a distribution app called DistroKid. So it'll be on Spotify. It's not the Night of the Dolphin, it's Night of the Dolphin. If people were to go to my Twitter, which is at aka Dane Giro, uh Giroux is g-i-r-a-u-d i I have a pinned tweet on that uh on, on that account with a link to the spotify and you know you can save that link and it'll release and it'll all be there the the comedy album i have a boxing combat sport mma style podcast coming out in january too so that'll be that'll be all over my socials as well but Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, We do have a um, new FM out in um, South Auckland that's going to run it as well. They're going to house the album. What I'm going to do as well is send emails to every uh, production company and the broadcasters and platforms and say, really consider these kids. They've done great work here. They should be in your plans. These are future stars. And then do it all over again because I had such a great time doing it
1: oh no you can definitely tell that it was loads of fun hey look this has been see i knew we went i'm so glad that we finally got this conversation yeah. on the record as it were we've been dancing around for such a long time to get this to make this happen so yes. I've, it's been such a joy to t- talk to you today mm. this has been O from the Plainsight blog plus many other things still more great content here to come though on counterculture marty will be along next with media matters and then of course we'll have the work news of the week
0: This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.